In Texas, it is Midland, not Moscow, but maybe renewables aren't so bad after all. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. Jeremy Wallace is here as always. Just a sort of mishmashy week of news, Jeremy. A lot going on, but as I have said many times on this show, I could start with almost any of these things we're going to talk about. Yeah, what, yeah what, what would you like? What would you like to start with? What, what, well, what do you think was the most interesting? Well, the most important thing was Lyle Love is coming out with a new album, and like I was there oh. to hear part of it. So, but but that was at Green Hall in New Braunfels earlier this week. So you probably mean something more political, don't you? <laughs> well, no, I mean that will suffice. I mean it was probably two or three hours to get away from this uh, nonsense. One of the other things you attended this week. Let me start with a speech that Governor Abbott gave. This is the time of year when you have a lot of different trade associations, particularly in the oil and gas industry. Uh, They have their meetings in Austin. Uh, Their members get together and they talk about the challenges facing their industry and the successes of their industry and all of that. And what happens every time, Jeremy, the people who are in office in Texas want to go talk to them. And I saw where one of the uh, groups, the Permian Basin uh, Petroleum Association, they were handing out bumper stickers that I and I asked if they would keep a couple of them for me, just set them aside. They were handing out these stickers that say, can you see my 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 iPad here, Jeremy? Yep. One of the stickers says, producing freedom. And another one says, Midland, not Moscow, uh, with the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine. And I even heard a Democrat this week, a Texas Democrat running for railroad commission with with what's happening in Russia and Eastern Europe right now. Even a Democrat, Luke Warford, running for railroad commission, which, of course, railroad commission oversees the oil and gas industry, nothing to do with railroads. You always have to say that because people don't know it. Um, the, The Democrat said, we need Texas oil and gas more than ever. So this is this is bipartisan. People think we need more production. They don't necessarily think that uh, you know we need to uh, ramp it up in a way that would be uh, you know uh, as, as some would say too much and at the uh, risk of the environment. But we do need more uh, domestic production, and you do see the Biden administration moving in the direction of you know making uh, what is it a million uh, barrel a day release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We do need more. Oil right now, uh, the price of a barrel is just under, as as we record uh, on Friday afternoon, just under a hundred dollars a barrel. So one of the things that you attended this week was Governor Abbott speaking to one of these oil and gas groups, right? And he sounded a little different to me uh, from the way he sounded a year ago during Winter Storm Uri. At this speech uh, that you attended, he was talking about you know how how we do need more oil and gas coming out of Texas, but we also need renewable energy as well. All that said, know this, you can have fossil fuels while at the very same time be leaders in renewable energy. Texas is uh, not just the national leader. Uh, we are either number one or number two in the world in the production of oil and gas. At the same time, Texas is number one in the United States for renewables. We are fifth internationally in wind energy. Uh, By the end of this year, we likely will be number one in the United States for solar, uh, with massive growth in the state of Texas in solar, as well as ongoing wind. And uh, many of you may know that there's uh, 
advancements taking place very swiftly uh, with regard to battery technology. Battery technology, it makes the uh, solar energy easier to harness and capture for later use. Uh, putting that a little bit uh, uh, shorter, Jeremy, would just simply be to say, as technology gets better, things get better. It gets better. This is very different from what Abbott was saying during the winter freeze last year. Remember, he was bad-mouthing the Green New Deal on Fox News Channel. This shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Our wind and our solar got shut down and, and they were uh, collectively more than 10% of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis. It just shows uh, that fossil fuel is necessary uh, for the state of Texas as well as other states to make sure that we were, uh, will be able to heat our homes in the wintertime and cool our homes in the summertime. At the time, it seemed especially outrageous to a lot of people that the governor was bad-mouthing wind and solar at uh, a moment when that really had nothing to do with, a tiny, tiny bit to do with, but, but in a large sense, nothing to do with what was going on with people not having power in their homes. We do know uh, that the biggest problem during the winter storm was uh, had to do with, with gas, with natural gas, right? Because, because we're so dependent on it. Uh, and you have Republicans in this state over the years who have promoted a robust and diverse fuel mix. Uh, the proliferation of wind energy in Texas happened under the predecessor to Abbott. That would be Rick Perry, who, of course, Correct. was not a liberal, not a liberal Democrat, right? So when you heard him talk about it this way this week, Jeremy, uh, where he was saying we do need more renewables and we're making all kinds of advancements with that, that got your attention, didn't it? Yeah, it did a total double check and double take on the thing because uh, you know the thing he was speaking at was actually a U.S. Chamber of Commerce event, uh, and so like you know. And I, and I expected him to talk about how great oil was doing because, you know, as we mentioned, like production of oil right now in Texas is sky high. It's like it's producing a lot of jobs. You know, with some reports, if you've you know, seen the Houston Chronicle earlier in the week, that like, you know, they're producing more jobs in the oil industry than, than they have in years. You know, it's like so like all this production has been great for us. But in this case, like I'm sitting there re ready for him to talk about that. But instead, he does this whole speech on how great renewable energy is. And it sounds Sounded very similar to kind of what I've heard Beto O'Rourke saying in terms of is uh you know what he, he says it's uh all the above energy policy you know is how he kind right. of presents it. Abbott was almost saying that we can have this as well as fossil fuels. You know he made the case in that speech that like you know Texas wants to be the leader in wind and solar, which is just not what he was saying a year ago. Obviously, when a lot of people you know were turning on wind and solar, and it's it good kind of you know as I was kind of working on the story, I kind of realized like one of the things that, you know, a lot of, you'll hear a lot of people, Republicans particularly talk about how like there were some wind turbines that froze up and didn't operate. But what they didn't mm -hmm. say in that is that we have wind turbines in all different parts of the state. So if they do freeze in one area, they keep going in another area and continue right. to add to the power generation. So you know, what, what benefits Texas on the grid for all types of fuels is if we have stuff in every corner of the state. And it's like, so the wind turbines may be up in the panhandle. We're having a hard time with the freeze, but down in South mm -hmm. Texas where they were still getting coastal wind, you know, they were still operating and moving quite well. And so it's just interesting to see Abbott now embracing that more, particularly as Beto O'Rourke talks about it more on the campaign trail. It feels like he's going to try to head Beto O'Rourke off at the pass 
on this you know idea that you know you know the governor's not doing enough on renewables. Well, now Abbott's saying, oh, look how much I'm doing on renewables. I'm doing great. Right. And I I wonder if uh, you know the uh, blueprint or the playbook for the Abbott campaign going into the fall is not dissimilar from what happened during the primary, uh, just in a different direction, right? On the, in, in the primary, you had uh, Don Huffines and Alan West uh, criticizing Abbott for a whole host of things, and as they would bring up certain issues, like they would say, let's build a wall. Well, Abbott would say, okay, we're building a wall. Or if they would say, you know, something about guns, they, they, he would go in that direction. If, if, they, if they criticized him on LGBTQ issues, uh, he would go in their direction on it. Basically taking the issues off the table and sort of trying to neutralize the argument that they were making about firing the incumbent, which is what you do when you're trying to defeat someone who's in office. If Beto O'Rourke is coming at him on renewable energy, things regarding the grid, um, you know, on Medicaid expansion, some of these other things that moderate Republicans could go along with, then it wouldn't surprise me, Jeremy, to see Abbott's campaign and Abbott personally try to take those issues off the table from Beto one after another. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's smart politics in a way. It's like when you think of like how small the uh, the swing voter pool of voters is going to be come next November. Uh, anything Abbott can do to take away people who might be curious in voting for Beto uh, is probably good for you know Greg Abbott. And so if like if it, why let Beto Orta go off on you know renewable energies and sound like the leader? of that mm -hmm. why not take some of those votes away you know it's, i'm not saying it's going to be millions of people but i think if mm -hmm. abbott can can present himself look what i've already done with renewables i'm promoting renewals re renewables and fossils you know it's like yeah. but you have the same thing it's funny just like you know o'rourke is almost saying the same thing in a different way right he's saying it's like you know we can have renewable and fossil fuels it's like i love fossil fuels you know he knows that he wants to keep it going you know it's like he in fact if you remember during the presidential race he was getting blasted for being too pro fossil fuel uh and the bernie sanders people were all over him for being like in the pocket of the oil industries or whatever <laughs> right that, that texas democrat he's going to yeah. have a little bit different voting record than someone from Vermont, absolutely uh, for yeah for example, uh, while we're talking energy, I just want to mention this. There were some reports this week, and it's something that you could have guessed, um, but and, and I do think it's something that was raised sort of under the surface. It's a question people were asking last year when the electricity grid failed, and then there were efforts to uh, to reform the electricity market in Texas. Some folks were asking, what about when you have cyber attacks? What about actors like Russia? Well, of course, now we have Russia attacking Ukraine. And if you listen to what Putin is saying, it, he is obviously obsessed with the West generally and the United States specifically. So it shouldn't uh, surprise people that Russian hackers might target the most vulnerable of the electricity grids in the United States. As you know, Jeremy, there's only one grid that only serves one state, right? There are three big grids, the Eastern grid, the Western grid, and the Texas grid. So we like to think we are the biggest and best in Texas, and we do have our own grid. And you remember that it was something that the secessionist folks, the Texas independence people would, would always point to that we have our own yes. electricity grid as a reason to break off and be our own country. It seems like a little bit of that died down after last year when you had the electricity grid, you know, near complete failure. Um, but we do have this possibility of Russian hackers trying to take down the Texas grid and nothing, as far as I can tell, 
nothing was done from a policy standpoint on that from the legislature last year, right? That was not even a, a real point of discussion, even though some people were raising the question. Chris Humphreys runs a cybersecurity firm uh, with clients who are on the electricity grid here in Texas, and he told CBS Austin that they are doing more now in the way of trying to you know, run the traps and trying to figure out if you have Russian hackers who are trying to attack the Texas grid. But what does that mean to be doing more when it comes to that kind of cybersecurity? What it means is maximizing your people, processes, and technologies at these utilities that, that they're getting the most out of them. They might have a tool installed that runs a vulnerability scan once a month or something because that's all they're mandated to do per regulation. But now they know they're running those daily or weekly because they need to be pro, more proactive in scanning their networks for who's trying to get in, right, and mitigating that. Whereas before it's like, okay, we do this to be compliant. That's enough, and we're good. But we're finding that whole plausible deniability and blame game doesn't work when you say, but I was compliant, and you get dinged with something like that. That's, that does no good on the blame game. So he talked to uh, Christian Flores there at CBS Austin. I want to give him the credit on that interview. I do think, uh, Jeremy, that the Democrats, when it comes to the electricity grid, and we've talked about this before, they have a balancing act that they have to do. It's that they need to remind people and you know, kind of have it be part of the conversation that, look, if something goes wrong with the electricity grid, you know who to blame, right? This is what Beto O'Rourke and others have been trying to do. At the same time, the balance here is they don't want to sound like they're rooting for it to fail. But when you have uh, Russian hackers as a potential uh, problem, you know, for, try, for trying to take down our electricity grid, which would be maybe more likely than uh, something else that could happen, which is just the natural uh, thing of having rolling blackouts in the middle of the summer uh, if it gets too hot. Uh, because we have continued to have explosive growth in Texas and the growth of electricity generation has not kept up with that. Now, do you want to talk about pot? Do you want to talk about marijuana for a of second? Of course. <laughs> I get this question all the time. Why don't we have legal marijuana in Texas? Fortunately, I know all the answers. I'll give you some of those in just a second. Um, you may have seen just this afternoon that the U.S. House of Representatives did vote in largely partisan fashion. This is mostly being uh, supported by Democrats. They have voted for what they call the MORE Act, M-O-R-E Act, uh, which has to do with decriminalization, not legalization, but decriminalization of pot. Here's what Speaker Pelosi had to say about it. It's the decriminalization of it. And the fact is, is many states have already done that. And so this is consistent with what is happening in many states across the country. And it also addresses the injustices of it uh, because of, of uh, uh, what penalties had been before uh, some of these uh, this decriminalization took place. So I'm, uh, I'm all for it. What it would do, these are just the brief bullet points uh, on this piece of legislation, which, of course, passed the House. It's always the Senate that's the holdup or the question mark, right? What it would do is eliminate criminal penalties for marijuana manufacturing, distribution, and possession, provide for regulation, taxation of cannabis as well, and uh, provide for expungement of federal marijuana convictions dating back to the 1970s. Of course, this is something that comes up in Texas all the time. Did you know, quick, uh, quick trivia, did you know that Texas is home to the first place to have a law outlawing marijuana i did not know that you, do you do you know where do you okay do you want to guess where it was where this is a good one and it goes right into the governor's race no el paso no guess. 
El Paso, Texas. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so El Paso, Texas. El Paso, Texas was the first place to outlaw marijuana. Do you want to know why, or can you guess why? Oh, I'm it sure makes it perfect has, sense when you know. Yeah. Something racial is going to be certainly involved in this, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's right. So basically, it's because white people like to drink whiskey and, and Mexican Americans like to get high. At least, and now it's that everybody does those things. But back then, it was broken down that way. Uh, and it was a pretext for harassing Mexican Americans in El Paso. And as Beto O'Rourke has talked about, his hometown being the first place to outlaw marijuana, he talked about how that sort of took hold in El Paso and then spread around the American Mountain West. Marijuana was the pretext to stop Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in this community, to frisk them, to see if they had any of this substance on them, and to put them in jail. More than 100 years ago, we started the trend that then caught like wildfire throughout the Mountain West and in the big cities until by the 1930s, it's criminalized federally. So this all starts in El Paso, it spreads around to other states, and then at some point, it's illegal all across the United States. Now, this is tricky, right? This is a tricky piece of uh, political maneuvering. Um, when Beto says that he's all for decriminalization and legalization, you know, he's talked a lot about this. He wrote a, didn't he write a, a book about it, or at least part of the book that he wrote was about this. Um, when he talks about money wasted on incarceration, and the idea that we lose out on revenue by not taxing it like other states do, he does have this to say as well, which is that he's not saying that young people should be encouraged to smoke pot. Now listen, uh, we, this should go without saying, but I'm just going to say it as the father of a 15 and a 13 and 11-year-old. I am not advocating that anybody use marijuana. I'm especially not advocating that young people use marijuana. We know that when a young person uses marijuana from the medical evidence that we have, it's not good for their brain, which is still developing at the time. But right now, with marijuana being sold in the black market, one of the fastest growing markets for marijuana is in a middle school playground. Because drug dealers don't ID, they don't care about the consequences or implications. And when it's not regulated and controlled, we have no ability really to keep it out of the hands of our kids. So he's saying that the fact that it's not regulated now means it's easier for young children, people in middle school, I'll say you know, kids, uh, to be able to get the stuff. Um, why is it not legal in Texas when it's legal now in all these other places? In fact, right around us in Oklahoma, which is now more liberal than Texas <laughs> on a couple of things, um, you know, in Colorado for sure. In Nevada, in the other, these other places where they have legal growing operations and dispensaries, their politics are a little different, but they're not, you know, I mean, let's be, I'm joking about Oklahoma. They're not more liberal than Texas is, right? So, so what's going on with this? Well, I would say a couple of things about it. One, based on polling that I've seen and that I trust, if you ask people, and this even applies to young Democrats, if you ask people what are their top priorities for what state government ought to be doing, this is not one of the top priorities at all. If you ranked things, you know, list of one to 10, the last thing on the list, even with young Democrats, would be legalization of pot. If you think about that, it makes some sense. Number one, potheads, pot smokers are not necessarily the most fired up people, right? So they're not, they're not really animated about getting something done on this. Number two, do you know anyone? And I would ask Jeremy, I would ask our producer Harper, I would ask anybody listening, do you know anyone who smokes pot in Texas who can't get it? 
No. <laughs> right. Right. So so the for, so for the P and look, it's sold in neighborhoods. Everybody knows where this goes down and people just kind of don't care. Now, in and I say people don't care. In the big cities, here's another reason that it's not a big priority. In big cities like Harris County and Dallas County, are you even in a lot of trouble if you get caught with it? No, right? I mean, they have now moved in a lot of the big cities to cite and release. Yeah. You know, you might get a ticket for it. You know, it's been, quote, decriminalized in a lot of the urban areas where the most people would have been using it. That's not to say they don't use it out in the country, in the rural areas, too. Um, that's not to say that Republicans don't enjoy it as well on some level. I saw Roberto said a version of that in one of his recent uh, appearances uh, somewhere. But, Jeremy, for a whole host of reasons, it's just not a priority for people. Now, the other thing that I would say is that even in you know some of the fundamentals of the politics have changed. Remember that the Republican Party of Texas has a platform that's more welcoming into the idea of decriminalization than it was in years past. But you also, in the Texas legislature, have the reality that the lieutenant governor who has the ability to just say he's not even going to recognize a senator who wants to push a bill on this. And the power of recognition recognition is a lot in the legislature. He doesn't support this at all. Dan Patrick's base, it's a throwback. It, it's such a throwback to the old school evangelical Republican base, Right, he's not speaking to those who are more libertarian in their thinking. He's not speaking those to those who, you know, would would turn the other cheek and not, and not worry about this. He is one of those hell no sort of politicians on this sort of an issue. And we've seen this where the Texas House will do something on it, but it won't really go anywhere in the Texas Senate. I don't see that changing with Patrick. Um, but at the same time, uh, you have to realize that look, it's not enough that the House might pass it. It, the, the House and Senate have to do it. And as former Speaker Joe Strauss used to say, if the House and Senate don't do the thing together, that thing just doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, well and yeah, you hear the echoes of Nancy Reagan, just don't just say no stuff, say you no. know, when you hear a lot of the Senate, you know, talk about That's the so issue. Effective. But mm -hmm. you know what, what has the potential of really changing this thing uh, beyond the governor's race, you know, obviously that's going to be happening. Uh, but, you know, look what happens, you know, starting, you know, this week, actually in New Mexico, they started to legalize, you know, marijuana. And so mm -hmm. now it's like the pressure is going to grow on a lot of these places, like, you know, particularly out West where people can go across the border. You know, the folks in El Paso are going to know that the people in Lubbock and Amarillo, they're going to know uh, the politicians there are going to see in you know in real time how people are able to go legally you know you know to get marijuana you know it, mm -hmm. just nearby and they're going to see it's not just kids it's like you know they get in this mind that like yeah. you know legalizing marijuana means young people are going to be high everywhere what they don't see is what we ended up seeing when I worked in Florida which was mm -hmm. a lot of older communities were getting marijuana. You know, because it was good for arthritis. It was good for all sorts of yeah. ailments that people didn't want to take more medications for because they're already taking all these medications, right? And so what right. people are going to see when they're in places like Amarillo and, and Lubbock, they're going to find out that it's veterans, it's senior citizens, it's people, you know, fighting cancer. You know, those are the people who need the access to marijuana, who just can't get it legally in the state. You can't transport it anywhere. And now they're going to be in this position. Well, if I just go, you know, over to Las Cruces, you know, I can get mm -hmm. marijuana, you know, 
you know, take this for my PTSD or for my arthritis or help me with this cancer drug that's like going to kill me if I don't use this mm-hmm. stuff. And so there's all yeah. kinds of pressure. I think you're going to see, you know, yeah, I predict, you know, in a few years, you're going to see pressure from, you know, whoever's elected out West, you know, to start mm-hmm. kind of maybe changing their tune a little bit as they see how many of their own residents are really using it and find it useful. Yeah, and one of the other shifts that I should uh, I should mention when it comes to this is that you notice how uh, politicians who are in the uh, mold of someone like uh, the little governor Dan Patrick they they used to actively make the arguments against the stuff, and they don't really do that anymore. They just yeah. say no, right? It, it's more more of what you hear is people saying that it should be legal for some of the reasons that you laid out. I heard from someone just the other day who said that their elderly mother uh, is uh, somebody who doesn't certainly doesn't like getting high at all, but marijuana is the only thing that allows this elderly woman to sleep at night because she's, you know, it's a, it's a woman with arthritis and she has, you know, at 41 years old, I can tell you, as you get older, everything hurts. And sometimes just going to sleep hurts. Right. And when you're an elderly person and you just want to get some rest, you know, it can be the thing that, uh, that lets you get that rest without having really any, other side effects whatsoever. It's it, it'll be interesting to watch this, but whenever I hear people say that, oh wow, look at the polling, the polls show that everybody supports it. It's north of seventy percent support for a thing like this. Number one, you're leaving out that the Republican primary is the election of consequence in Texas. Exactly. Yeah. And well, and and, and, and the Republican and number two, it. Mm-hmm. You know, the Republican yeah, platform in the state of Texas is still against marijuana. It's still against gaming. It's still against like, you know, some of those core Bible belt type issues that still are so throwback important stuff. in the Republican party. Throwback stuff. Let me, yep. um, let me give you another throwback sort of issue. Did you think that we were kind of done with the debate over gay marriage that, you know, that the Supreme court said that there's marriage equality in the Obergefell decision and we're done with that. Yeah. Well, after what well, yeah a lot of people thought that's just kind of over with and nobody cares anymore and folks can do whatever whatever they want when it comes to that um senator john cornyn during the confirmation hearings for judge katanji brown jackson let everybody know that republicans are not done with that um cornyn and someone asked me why we didn't talk about cornyn last week in those hearings well you know we heard the whole ted cruz clown car you know ish, uh, uh, list of issues last week and you can only spend so much time on one meeting on one hearing right um senator cornyn and here's a big difference i think between cruz and cornyn cruz was flaming the judge and you know trying to tar and feather her in the public square during that uh hearing i didn't see cruz really doing that or excuse me i didn't see cornyn doing that i yeah, saw I cruz doing that. <laughs> I was, yeah no you saw cruz doing that i miss, misspeak um cruz was doing that not cornyn cornyn's just disagreeing with her Right. Um, and disagreeing with her about gay marriage. Listen to the exchange between Judge Jackson and Senator Cornyn as he's asking about the way the Supreme Court made its decision in that case about same sex marriage. Do you agree with me that uh, marriage is not simply a governmental institution? It's also a religious institution? Well, Senator. Um Marriages are often performed in religious institutions. Well, when the, when the, you agree with me that many of the the major religions that I can think of, and they're Christianity, Judaism, Islam, 
embrace a traditional definition of marriage, correct? I am aware that there are various religious faiths that define marriage in a traditional way. Do you, um, do you see that when the Supreme Court makes a dramatic pronouncement about the invalidity of state marriage laws, that it will inevitably set in conflict um, between those who ascribe to the Supreme Court's edict and those who have a firmly held religious belief that marriage is between a man and a woman? Well, Senator, these issues are being litigated, as you know, throughout the courts as people um, raise issues. And so I'm limited in what I I can say about them. So Judge Jackson trying the old tried and true method of saying, look, this stuff is in the courts. I can't really talk about about any of that. Cornyn is saying, look, I'm I'm not asking you to tell the future or anything or look into, you know, look into the crystal ball, but he did want to nail her down about this. I'm just asking, isn't it apparent that when the Supreme Court decides that something that is not even in the Constitution is a fundamental right and no state can pass any law that conflicts with the Supreme Court's edict, particularly in an area where people have sincerely held religious beliefs, doesn't that necessarily create a conflict between what people may believe is a matter of their religious doctrine or faith and what the federal government says is the law of the land? Well, Senator, that is the nature of a right, that um, when there is a right, um, it means that there are limitations on regulation, even if uh, people are regulating pursuant to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Right. It's the whole point uh, of of saying that you have a right to do this. It doesn't matter if other people don't think that it's okay because of their religious beliefs or, or whatever their opinion is about what you're doing, that you have the right to go on and do that anyway. Right. And what I think is fascinating about this, you know, you have a lot of folks who, as I said, think that we were kind of done with this whole debate, but we're not. And, you know, if you, I was listening to some analysis um, just this week uh, that was centered on the idea that, you know, years ago, and I mean pre-Trump, um, the arguments that you would hear mostly from Republicans were at least mix, they had a good mix of of mainly economic issues, you know, lower taxes and a predictable regulatory climate, you know, being friendly to business and all that sort of stuff. And the gas in the tank for the Republican Party now nationally and in this state as well seems to be these social issues that are parading around as populism. Um, and what I mean by that is that, look, you have all these folks who are very angry about a changing America. A lot of folks who don't like the fact that the communities they live in, specifically in the Texas suburbs and other similar communities, they're ethnically diversifying. They're growing at a rate that is, you know, just exponential. It, it's, it's explosive the way the growth is happening. You look at the arrests on January 6th, all these people who were there to ransack the Capitol because the election went in a way that they didn't like. Um, and they've run the numbers on this, Jeremy. A lot of those people are from those communities where they were rapidly ethnically diversifying 
those white people look around and go, I don't like this. Uh, Straight white men looking around going, I don't like this. And so for Republicans, their winning coalition includes these folks who love former President Trump, who are the non-college educated white guys who look around the country and say, I don't like this. And so the Republican um, playbook right now is to be a bulwark against change, uh, the bulwark against what these changes are. So what do you have? You have uh, Cornyn speaking out against gay marriage. You have politicians around here banning the teaching of critical race theory, even though it's not really happening in our public schools in Texas. You have banning certain books. We don't want to talk about transgender uh, people. And uh, we have uh, actively taken on a role of, in state government of pushing back against any of these, what I would say are often just marginalized groups. Trans people, we're talking about less than 1%. But it speaks to the large group of people who are uncomfortable with that, who are uncomfortable with the fact that this is always in their face right now. And so all these things really go together. It's not any one of the things that I just mentioned, including the gay marriage stuff, which may be another big fight in the courts. That's what uh, Cornyn seems to be signaling there. But you do have a base of the Republican Party that is very unhappy with all the change that they're seeing. And so the folks who are trying to speak to them and win their support are going to speak the way Cornyn's speaking. Well, and, and, and you know, listening to Cornyn, you know, and, you know, some of the people are right. We didn't give him enough attention for this thing. We all think of like Cruz because, you know, Cruz is the fireworks show, you know, it's like, he's, he's right. making all the noise, you know, he lives for this, we think, right. You know, it's like, it's the judiciary committee. It's him being, you know, presidential and talking about the Supreme court, which he just absolutely loves, obviously. But, you know, mm-hmm. what you heard in that uh, at the same time, this is John Cornyn's DNA too. It's like, people forget like John Cornyn's on the judiciary committee because this guy is a creature of the courts. This is a guy who was a Texas Supreme Court justice. He started his legal career, you know, he was he became a judge in the 37th Judicial District. And you know, here's a fun, you know, fact. Who appointed him to that position? Mark White, a Democratic governor, right? You know, it's like John Cornyn was, you know, got his start as a judge, uh, at least on the district court level, you know, through that. So this is an area where John Cornyn has deep passion for about the courts, about the judicial system. He does it in an entirely different way than Ted Cruz does, right? You know, this is, you know, fireworks versus a slow and steady, you know, platform, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, based arguments he's making. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you can't tell it in his voice there, but, you know, John Cornyn is charged up. You know, that is, that is John, John Cornyn. That's as charged, charged up as he gets. Up. Yeah, exactly. Talking that about judicial philosophy, talking yes. about the way that they arrived at their decision, comparing it to the way that uh, the court arrived at its Dred Scott decision, yep. and all of that is John Cornyn on fire. Yeah, exactly. That is, that. you know, it's like, you know, this is, a, a, the, he. that's where he sounds to me like, you know, the guy went to Trinity University. He went to St. Mary's Law School down in, in San Antonio. It's like, you know, this is a guy who has, you know, you know we kind of lose sight of him at times because of Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz, like, you know, loves the Constitution and all that, that he, you know, says all right. throughout Iowa. But yeah, John Cornyn yeah, yeah. is rock solid judicial you know, issues first, you know, that guy really digs into that stuff. And, uh, just, uh, in the last 24 hours said that he would not be supporting judge Katanji Brown Jackson, which I expected. I think they are up to one Republican. Yeah. Susan Collins earlier this week, you know, she said she was going to join in and watch for Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney. I wouldn't be surprised if Mitt Romney, you know, goes with her. 
Yeah, they haven't held the vote yet. We'll see if there's other Republicans who uh, who join in in, con- in confirming her. Um, but she does seem to be on track to to be confirmed. Um, uh, on this question of the country changing rapidly and putting uh, putting folks who again are sort of in these marginalized groups on display. You saw this week that it was the day of visibility for transgender people and um you know transgender men and women uh you know uh, putting out their statements on social media and joining them was beto o'rourke running for governor and he had a uh, shirt it was in the it was the same design as don't mess with texas which is often credited as one of the uh best marketing campaigns ever yes just getting trash you know it's for a lot of people don't even remember what it was for it was for getting uh, people to not litter on the roadsides yeah. right that's what it was all about and now it's just don't mess with texas for everything you know don't and obviously you shouldn't mess with us because we've demonstrated the ability to be really crazy if you mess with us um well he had this shirt <laughs> that said don't mess with trans kids and he was being flamed on twitter and people saying that he looked ridiculous in the in the picture and asking whether he was a transgender person and whatever else. Uh, but it's not new for him. And I, I wanted to come back to a discussion we had previously, Jeremy, where we talked about this idea that for Beto, he is trying to prioritize those things that he might get some crossover appeal about, like Medicaid expansion, like support for public schools in Texas, et cetera. But he does also talk about these things that charge up the left, right? He needs his base to come out and vote for him as well. And it's not new for him to be standing up for trans people. You remember last year, he took the step of testifying at the legislature when they were considering a ban on transgender youth playing in sports in, in Texas yep. in our high schools. Right. Um, and he said, look, he, he was, um, he was moved by some of the comments from transgender children about their experience. He talked about, you know, the negative economic impacts potentially from that kind of legislation, constitutional questions as well, but he ended his testimony with this. But, but what got me more than anything else um, was the moral question that is before us. And listening to Charlie Apple, uh, who said, sports saved my life. Um, that really got me, I had to get you too. Um, those of you who are parents, uh, uh, Amy and I are raising a 14 year old, uh, a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old, and, and I was thinking about my kids when I was listening to Charlie Apple. And so let me conclude with this. Um, you're good people. You're public servants. Um, you, you ran for office, and you're, and you're sitting and serving here because you want to you help people. You don't want to hurt people. And it could not have been your intent, including the author of this bill, to hurt anybody. But now that you know it will hurt people, I hope that you will withdraw this bill, and if it should move forward, that those of you who are on this committee and are listening to those who've testified today will oppose it. Thank you very much. Of course, that legislation eventually passed, Jeremy, and it continues to be sort of a litmus test in the Republican Party in the primaries and the primary runoffs. What do Republican lawmakers think about these issues surrounding transgender folks? I was thinking about the way that this is being uh, debated around the country. And I mentioned last week uh, or the week before that polling that had to do with just how just the perceptions of what people think about the size of these marginalized groups where you have uh, a lot of Americans thinking that there may be as many as 10 or 12 percent of people are transgender in this country when it's really more like one percent. My poll, uh, my point in bringing that up is that I think it these discussions give people a skewed um, uh, perception of what the reality is out there. They're probably on any average day they're not going to meet somebody who's 
transgender, probably not interact with somebody who's transgender. And in most cases, if, and this is, you would never know this from a lot of the coverage that you see or the stories that you see and what you see on Fox news and social media and all this other stuff. If you ever interact with a transgender person, you probably didn't know it. Yeah. Right. But most people who, somebody who was born a male and lives their life as a female, you does not usually run around protesting and letting everybody know that it's the activist class who do that. And I was thinking about the difference in the way that, for example, Houston, downtown Houston was integrated quietly during the civil rights movement. You know about this? So in other Southern cities, in Atlanta and places in Florida and elsewhere, when their downtown districts were integrated and they took down the whites only signs and the lunch counters were made such that, you know, anybody could, could eat their whites and blacks together. Um, it was covered in real time in the news. It was in the newspaper and may have been on uh, local television, but in Houston, and you can look this, it's really interesting. You can look this up. The business community went to the press. They went to the Houston Chronicle and the Houston Post and whoever else. And they said, we would like to request a blackout of media coverage of the integration of downtown. You can cover it at a certain point, if you'll agree to this. Uh, but if you'll just let us do it sort of quietly, then the the way it plays out will be a little bit different. And that is what happened. They had a media blackout of the integration of downtown Houston. And it was the only Southern city, unlike Dallas and some other places where when they did the integration, they didn't have any violence in Houston when that, when that happened. And so I'm just thinking about, now you could not do that now, right? There'd be no way to do, I mean, people would be just tweeting live from the scene of what was going on. Um, but there's an interesting thing happening now with this, uh, with this transgender movement, if you want to call it that, of people who are, are transgender or have transgender people in their families and they're having a day of visibility, and it's the exact opposite of what I'm talking about with what happened in, in Houston. And you're inviting, in a lot of ways, the kind of blowback that you're seeing. And you're inviting, in a lot of ways, the misperception that there are a lot more people who are transgender in this country than there really are, right? And so this is just playing out in a, in a completely different way. The way that things happen now, Jeremy, it's all instantaneous. And so I think the calculation from folks, if there is one, who are advocating for transgender people is, look, they're just going to be out there and proud about it. And if people don't like it, that's too bad. But at the same time, they shouldn't be surprised when there's a lot of blowback from the people who are very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, it's not too dissimilar, you know, from the whole, you know, gay rights issue, right? You see that, you know, yeah. played out there too, where you have like, you know, some people envision it as like a gay pride parade and downtown new orleans versus you know a small community of farmers where there happens to be a gay couple right there's a very there's a huge gap in between those things and people's perceptions are affected by that you know it's just like mm -hmm. so it's like if somebody thinks oh, oh what you want is you know gay rights you know what i'm seeing in new orleans versus what i'm seeing in brownwood texas it's a totally different game to be talked about and and discussed and you can see you know even with the transgender issue how that like makes it harder for people to kind of like it's easier to see it from a distance and say i see a transgender person in pennsylvania doing this mm -hmm. and that you know i'm upset about it versus oh right there's a maybe your neighbor who is maybe transgender mm -hmm. and you just haven't known that the whole time so uh, it's a, a very difficult level of politics to try to get into that and try to figure out who you're hurting who you're not hurting mm -hmm.
Well, and, you know, when you look at, for, for example, we had a Texas House race uh, in North Texas in Sherman, the Sherman-Denison area up in Grayson County, uh, where Shelley Luther, uh, who, of course, uh, rose to a, a little bit of fame for a little while for being the uh, hairdresser who uh, was upset with Governor Abbott and his COVID restrictions, she said the quiet part out loud about transgender children. Yeah. Right. She she talked about being someone who had been uh, in public schools in Texas as a teacher. And she said something like uh, it was pretty close to a direct quote. She said something like, well, I have other kids in class who can't make fun of the transgender children as if it was bad that the other kids couldn't make fun of them. Right. And even in front of a Republican crowd, when she said that. She did not get a good reaction, yeah. right? Because people thought, oh, wait, you're going way too far with this. I think it's a little revealing of what some of those people in the crowd actually feel, which is they're just uncomfortable about pe people being transgender at all, which something that we know uh, is true is there have always – there's always been a version of people who are transgender, of people who are – I mean, it's in the Bible. If people cross-dressing and, you know, I mean, I was watching – you remember the uh, – what was it, in the seventies where they had uh, the, the 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 animal version of Robin Hood, the Disney movie. Yeah, and there's a there's a scene in there when uh, Robin Hood and Little John put on women's clothes because they're going to go rob uh, uh, Prince John of his gold. I don't remember anybody freaking out about that, but how's it different? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> from a visual standpoint. Now they're all upset at Disney, right, in, in Florida. We'll get to Florida in just a little bit. Uh, I mentioned COVID restrictions. You see where Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, this past weekend warned about the potential for reinstatement of some of the restrictions in the United States that we saw two years ago with uh, lockdowns and mask requirements and all of that. He was on uh, the BBC's Sunday morning show, uh, and he said that, quote, people need to be prepared for the possibility of restrictions being put back into place. Governor Abbott saw that and immediately tweeted out, it is not going to happen in Texas. Meantime, Fauci told that show in the UK that there is no way to know exactly how effective lockdowns were in the first place. You know, I don't think we're ever going to be able to determine what the right balance is. I think the restrictions, if you want to use that word, which I tend to shy away from lockdown, there's certainly prevented a lot of infections, prevented a lot of hospitalizations and prevented a lot of deaths. There's no doubt about that. Obviously, when you do have that kind of restriction on society, there are unintended negative consequences, particularly in children who are not allowed to go to school, in the psychological and mental health aspects it has on children, in the economic stress that it puts on society in general, on individual families, Obviously, those are negative consequences that are unintended. Jeremy, he had been asked whether it was worth it to have those lockdowns. And of course, he's talking about the nuance of what kind of economic output is at risk when you have uh, lockdowns and some of these uh, some of these restrictions, some of the uh, caps on and limitations on how many people could be in any facility at a certain time. You remember going through what was sort of surreal at the time of having huge events in Texas shut down, like South by Southwest, which means, I mean, that. That's a concrete example. I remember thinking when they shut down South by Southwest, this is a real thing now. Up yeah. until then, I thought, you know, okay, they're putting some restrictions in place and they're asking us to do social distancing and stuff like that. They hadn't really asked us all to wear masks yet. But when they said they're shutting down an event that is a direct economic impact for Central Texas of, I think, $330 million for that two-week period, um, yeah, 
That's a real deal, right? And then they shut down Rodeo Houston in Harris County. And that's a real deal. All that happening right around the same time. So when you ask now, was it worth it? And you have Governor Abbott saying, well, it's never going to happen again in Texas. He's probably right that politically it's not palatable, that you couldn't ask people to do those things again. They're just not going to, people won't put up with it. When you're talking about um, public health policy, you do, and this is one thing that I have certainly taken away from this pandemic, you have to factor in what people will actually do, right? You can't just say, okay, everybody has to wear a mask. Everybody has to socially distance. Everybody has to avoid all these big events. Well, you know, you're going to get some, you're going to get some of that, even when it's the vaccine, right? Especially maybe when it's the vaccine, you say everybody needs to get vaccinated. Not everybody will get vaccinated. So at some point you, as a public health uh, official, you push for certain things. And it's entered my mind many times, Jeremy, that maybe they push for certain things that might seem so restrictive because they know that that's kind of their negotiating point, right? That they, that they want to be over here with saying, you need to do all of these things fully knowing and hoping that, you know, people will maybe only do 50 to 60% of those things. Um, and in the meantime, we still have COVID hanging around, right? You were looking at the numbers. Yeah. Well, well the, the good news is that it looks like it's all going in the right direction, you know, statewide, yeah. you know, we're down to 1,100, you know, about people in the, um, in the hospitals with lab confirmed COVID-19. You have to go back to April 3rd, 2020. The first day that the state started tracking the hospitalization numbers to find a lower number. So we're, we are mm-hmm. actually at the beginning, you know, a, a, a time where most of us can't even probably remember what life was like before COVID. But our hospitalization right. now are now so low that, you know, it, it looks like it's almost back to, you know, where we were before COVID hit. But the other thing to kind of remember on this, like, man, there's a lot of people who have died from this, you know, so just looking right. at the numbers, it just was a refresher to know that like you know, 86,000 people have died just in Texas. You know, that's the official number. That's not, that doesn't mm-hmm. even count like, you know, all the stuff that the state probably didn't count. You know, it's like that mm-hmm. where people had COVID and maybe weren't tested before. And so we can't confirm it. It's just like, there's a, you know, so it, it's just it's mind boggling to think of where we were like two years ago talking about mm-hmm. this, thinking, wow, there, there could be like, what, 2000 people who could die from this. But now here we are, we're, we're approaching, you know, 86,000 Texans who are gone. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it yeah. just strikes me every time I see that number that, you know, we may be coming at the tail end of this thing. Um, but man, the impact is huge, but, you know, and I think going back to the hospitalization, one of the numbers that, that's probably helping us a lot with that, you know, hospitalization number plummeting, you know, again, in two months, we've just gone from, remember we had like 13,000 in January in the hospitals mm-hmm. and now we're down to almost under a thousand, uh, a big reason for that, the, the vaccinations, you were just talking about it. Right. 77% right. of Texans have at least one dose in them. You know, 77%. I never thought we were going to get uh, close to 77%, you know, you know, but here we are. We're like, we, we've yeah. done actually a pretty good job of getting even the reluctant people to get at least the one shot, you know, yeah. are they impervious to the disease? No, no, but at least there's a little extra protection. And if you get to, in any crowd with people over 65, it's like 98% of Mm -hmm. Texans over 65 have at least one dose in them. And so those folks are really in good shape. So anybody who tells you that they're 65 and not vaccinated, they are a small percentage of percentage who have not gone yet to get even at least one shot. So that's good news. 
Right. And it, it, it's the thing of all of those, uh, you know, uh, public health measures that can be taken to try to mitigate what's going on. That's the one that keeps you from being hospitalized is going Perfect. and getting the yep. shot. Right. All of the other all of the other stuff. Is, and, and, you know, when we were first debating all these things, to your point about, you know, when we we might not have been able to imagine the numbers being where they were for vaccinations, some of this other stuff. Um when we first talked about it, that was when they were saying that they might be able to get us a vaccine someday. Yeah. And they were hoping they were hoping that it could happen that same year, right? Which it actually did, which I keep coming back to this. That should be something that's trumpeted by Republicans and Democrats alike as a bipartisan victory of the Trump administration with Operation Warp Speed moving as fast as possible. And of course, there were some underlying things about the science that allowed them to move faster than than uh, vaccines have been developed previously. But fact is, they got that done. Biden administration working to get the vaccines in people's arms. That ought to be something that everybody's happy with and celebrating. But as you know, it's a long way from that. Yeah, there's an in another as alternate as universe. Yeah, in an alternate yeah. universe somewhere, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are shaking hands, saying, "Wait, we couldn't have done this without each other." You know, you know, we got it started. You finished it off. You know, great job. You know, to everybody. Imagine a world where you know Joe Biden says, "You know, the Trump administration did really good at this," and Trump saying, "Yeah, it's like I'm. You know, it's the one thing that I'm happy with the Biden administration. They kept the momentum going. So, but you know, you'll we'll never hear any of that. That will never be." uttered in public by either the Democratic or Republican parties. <laughs> but in actuality, yeah. it turned out, you know, the Trump administration did, you know, get the vaccines to market quickly. Well, remember, and- they did. Uh, for, there was a brief moment. Um, what was it? Late last year um, or early this year when um, when Trump was in Dallas with Bill O'Reilly. And they were on stage together, and Trump said some version of, hey, look, I've got my booster shot, and O'Reilly said he had his booster shot. And then I think it was the next day, Biden said it might be the only thing we agree about. Yeah. Is that you, everybody should get, everyone should get the booster shot. There's no version exactly of what you're talking about where they're all, you know, shaking hands and having a big vaccine party. But, but they at least agreed about that. Um, I know that you are loath to share polling data when we are so far out from an election. I'm even, a little skeptical of doing it now for an election we'll have in Texas this November. But you look, you, you look at all these presidential polls, right? And people always, and when it comes to politics, that's all anybody ever remembers and wants to talk about is who's running for president. Yeah. Right. Everyone has an opinion about that. Just about, I I'm old enough to remember when not everybody had an opinion about who should run for president, but now everybody does. It's just, it's, you know, sort of the, the rise of celebrity candidacies. Um, Ron DeSantis, the governor in Florida, is developing a little bit of what I might call a cult following in the same way that former President Trump sort of have a, you know, has a cult following up until the point of having his own country theme song that has now been released across the United States. He stands up for what he believes. So don't come down here trying to change things. We're doing all right in the sunshine state. Stay out of our business, leave our gov alone. Down and sweet Florida. Our governor is red, white, and blue. Our governor is red, white, and blue, Jeremy. It's it's <laughs> it's hard not to laugh. Although 
kind of catchy. It's not as good as what you were listening to with Lyle Lovett. No, but he's doing well in the presidential polling, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. They're they're loving him. Yeah, and and I'm just one of the the phrases I I I most use probably in all politics is a year in politics is a lifetime. Well, in presidential politics, that is especially true. It's like I always love to tell the story about in 2007, I was in a room when Rudy Giuliani was you know vastly ahead of everybody in the Republican field for the Republican nomination, and Hillary Clinton in in 2007. They were both leading, and it's just like and a year later, both of them were gone. You know, they both were defeated, and Barack Obama was running as John McCain. And so, you know, right now, DeSantis looks like the guy. You know, that poll that you're talking to, you know, had Mike Pence second and Ted Cruz a, a relatively distant third. Uh, but who knows if any of those candidates, you know, are on mm-hmm. that you know, mix at this point? You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's it's. I, I like looking at those polls only that I know how we're going to laugh someday that, you know, that one of those names was in there. Oh, right. You know, people well, are going to Perry was going to be president. Exactly. Right? And, um, remember, uh, Thompson was going to be president. Remember, remember Thompson, the guy from Tennessee, you know, like everybody yeah, thought Fred he Thompson. Would, yeah. Fred Thompson was yep. like the number one candidate. He was going to blow the field away. And he, it felt like he lasted like 12 minutes in the presidential race right. before he was out. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, Abbott, not really in the mix there. Cruz nope. is, you know, sort of, he's there, but he's not very high in the numbers. And, you know, we'll just keep watching it. Watch this space, as we like to say. That's definitely enough show. I've had it. If you enjoy the show, and you know you do, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you're a subscriber, it'll just show up on your phone automatically without you doing anything. What What is not automatic is you giving us a positive review. Give us five stars. Say nice things about the show. I'll tweet those things out. I'll mention them here on the program. Give us the best rating you can. Five stars, not four stars. That that that, that business doesn't help me at all. Five stars. That's what I need. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next week. 